Guitar tech. It's a niche job in the music industry. But although it's a little-known job, it's a crucial job. The guitar tech, or guitar technician, is part of the band's road crew, getting the guitars ready for stars like The Edge, Brian May or Eric Clapton. Scott Halliday is an Irish guitar tech. On July 30th, 2011, he got the phone call of his career. The day had started off badly. One job had fallen through. So it was the final show of Lisa Hannigan's tour that year. And I found out at midday that day that Lisa had a tonsillitis or something like that. So she had to pull the gig. That was a bit of a bummer. And then like within an hour, I got a call. The call came from someone working on the preparation for the Dublin concert of one of the world's biggest stars, an African-American from Minnesota who sold millions of records. He was physically tiny, only five foot three, but musically a giant. He won seven Grammys, four MTV Awards and one Oscar. He was the star known as Prince. And for Scott Halliday, the Irish guitar tech, to get a call to work on his concert was fantastic. Prince was described as a musical genius but he was also described as very difficult to work with. Here he is talking to Larry King on CNN in 1999. You're a perfectionist musically, uh, right? Yeah. So you must get angry then. I use my anger with humor. So the person you're directing at is not made to feel less than a human. Well, no one can make you feel anything. You pretty much are gonna fall in there if you aren't spiritually based. Nevertheless, any young musician like Scott Halliday would be delighted to work anywhere near Prince because when it came to music, Prince was obsessive. His house in Minneapolis has a studio and he's recorded thousands of songs that were never released but are stored in what's called the vault. But although he was deeply serious about his music, Prince was a showman. With raunchy dance moves on stage, he was the artist who prompted the parental advisory stickers on albums. Prince's outfits featured sequins, gold lame trousers, high heels and makeup. And for his fans, his trademark colour was purple. So, for a young guitar tech to get a call to work on a Prince gig was a big deal. Just one problem. Scott got the call on July 30th and the Prince concert was on that same day. No! No! And the reason Scott got the call at such short notice? Well, Prince had just arrived in Ireland and had promptly fired most of his production team, including his guitar tech. There was an atmosphere like if you walk into a room, there's just some bad news has been delivered. Behind the scenes at the concert in Malahide Castle grounds, a whole new team of Irish production people had been drafted in hurriedly and what faced them was chaos. The crew that had been fired were packing up their things. So I said to them, can you give me some handover documents? 
She literally handed me a pen and a stapler and said, good luck, sweetie. But Scott didn't know any of this on that July day when he made his way to Malahide. I think if I had known what I was walking into, I possibly would have just not done it. But he did. And Scott Halliday, along with the other Irish production crew, played a small part in the story of Prince and Ireland. fans had queued overnight to guarantee themselves a place at the concert of the year. In the story of Prince and Ireland, 1990 was perhaps the most notable year of all. He was at the height of his career and he came to play a concert in Cork. And for those, the wait was definitely all worth it. Cork Multi-Channel TV covered the event. Teams of workmen began the task of transforming Parky Cueve into a mecca for Prince fans. The World Cup in Italy was on at the same time which probably explains why, at one point, the fans loved him, but he didn't really return the love. Ray Darcy explains during an interview with Stockton's Wing, who played support at the gig. It was the early 90s, and yeah. we were still in the, in the middle of Ole, 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 and of course, everyone started singing Ole, Ole, yeah. Ole. Prince didn't like it, he didn't like it. at all, no. no, because he wasn't in control. Prince's comment at the time was, this city needs an enema. 1990 was also the year Prince helped to start the career of one Irish star. Sinead O'Connor had a hit with his song, Nothing Compares to You. And while the rest of the world loved Sinead's work, Prince again wasn't returning the love, as Sinead told Norwegian TV station NRK. He summoned me to his house and he told me he didn't like me saying bad words in my interviews. So I told him to f*** off. After 1990, Prince played in Ireland another four times. But it was the concert in 2008 that next made the news. Live and exclusive. Pro Park, June 16th. Tickets on sale Wednesday morning. Prince come to Dublin, Prince is playing Crow Park. You're kind of thinking, yeah, that show will do well. Jim Carroll, journalist, says that it was to be an unremarkable date. To be honest, not many people thought much about the gig, as in it was one of a series of gigs which were happening that summer. But then two weeks before the concert, Jerry Ryan on 2FM was talking to presenter Jim Jim Nugent. You're a big Prince fan, aren't you? Yes, you could say that. Tuesday, the 10th of June, 2008. Don't tell me this, Jerry, don't tell me this. No. It is with great disappointment that no. the Prince concert scheduled to take place at Croke Park next Monday, the 16th of June, will no longer be taking place due to reasons beyond the control of Prince and MCD Productions. MCD promoter Dennis Desmond was going to have to reimburse 55,000 people. I'm going to bring down the faders. Do, and I'm going to, do I'm going to say what Dennis Desmond would actually be saying. Okay, I want to hear it. I'm, I'm going to say... They'd be saying something like that. They would, they would. Yeah. The Prince concert in Croke Park had sold plenty of tickets and was expected to sell more. Therefore, a lack of demand couldn't have been the reason to cancel. Inevitably then, there were rumours. He's the pint-sized pop star that's famous for doing the splits and gyrating his hips. But if rumours are to be believed, his onstage cavorting may have resulted in him needing to have a hip replacement operation. That particular rumour was never confirmed. And the public still didn't know why Prince had pulled out of the Quote Park gig. You can relax now. The Max is in control. 
Prince owed Dennis Desmond 1.6 million euro and he showed no sign of paying up. So in 2010, he was brought to court. Jim Carroll says the case threw up a good share of facts and quotes. For a start, we learned that Prince's fee for the Dublin show was $3 million and that the motors had paid half of that up front as a deposit. While Prince himself did not appear before Justice Peter Kelly, the case produced some colourful anecdotes and insights about the singer, including one from Keith Sarskin, who was an agent who acted for Prince. When told by Sarskin of Dennis Desmond's worries about the Pro Park show, Prince told his agent to, quote, tell that cat to chill. Sarskin also told the judge that Prince was not very good at deadlines and conversations to him were usually about such things as world issues, politics or religions, not guarantees of money. After Day spin listening to this kind of evidence, Justice Kelly concluded that he got the impression that Prince was, quote, a very erratic individual. The judge found against Prince and in favour of Dennis Desmond, who spoke outside the court. No, I'm delighted with the result. Okay. No hard feelings. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Dennis, okay. yeah, he, he, Prince said he would uh, tell the cat to chill, which is a famous quote, and he said he wanted to talk to you. Have you, yeah. have, have you spoken to him? No, well, the cat's very chilled. <laughs> but the cat didn't stay chilled for long. Prince just didn't pay up. Prince was determined to hold on to his millions and not hand them over to Dennis Desmond or MCD concerts or anyone else. So, in 2011, three years after Prince had pulled out of Croke Park, Dennis Desmond went back to court and got a Europe-wide enforcement order to get his money back, which at this point was 2.2 million euro. They could actually go after this money whenever Prince played in Europe, wherever Prince was earning revenue in Europe, they could go after it. Finally, the debt was paid in May 2011. And it wasn't really clear why, after all the delays, Prince decided to pay up in May. Then five days later, it became perfectly clear why he had settled. The world's greatest showman is coming to Ireland. Prince was coming to Europe. Performing his greatest hits. Saturday, July 30th. Subject to license. Malahide Castle, Dublin. You sexy man of... And Dennis Desmond's court order would have spoiled the party. See Prince live for one night only. And Prince was promising some party. This is him talking at the press conference for the tour. Bring friends, bring your children, and bring foot spray, because it's going to be fun. The timing was fantastic. You've got to admire Prince in that, in that regard. On one hand, here's the money I owe you, Dennis. Here's the 2.2 million, Denny. Go and put it in the bank. You're happy. You should be happy with that. And then five days later, he turns to Dennis Desmond's bitter rival, John Reynolds from Pod Concerts, and allows him to announce a show in Malahide Castle. For more, see pod.ie, The Irish Times, and Today FM. So you need to come early. You need to come often because I got a lot of hits. Anyone that has ever been to one of our concerts knows they know what time it is. He's right. Certainly according to his fans, a Prince concert was a seriously well put together occasion and the summer of 2011 European tour promised no different. I think his ability as a live performer is pretty much unparalleled. Rob S is an Australian who podcasts about Prince. Not only was he magnetic, electric, an amazing musician in his own right, I think it's safe to say that Prince was probably the most in the moment when he was on stage in front of his fans. 
The shows were amazing, they were really remarkable. But Prince's European concerts in the summer of 2011 were remarkable for the wrong reasons. Rob S saw the tour in Rotterdam. There were some sound issues. It was a really loud show. It was very loud, in fact. Now, this isn't the first loud concert I've been to. I don't want to sound like an old man when I say this, but it was, it was particularly loud to the point where at some points it was just unbearable to listen to. After Rotterdam, Cologne, and things got even worse. Torsten Fuchs, a music journalist, was at the concert. I must say he didn't look uh, very happy because the sound was very bad all over the area. A couple of times he told uh, the technicians that they should do something. So he said, stop that, stop that. So he was more or less crying for help because uh, he got horrible feedbacks from the speakers and <laughs> he cried, stop that, stop that. In Ireland, preparations were being made for Prince's concert in Malahide Castle. But MCD, the promoters who had to chase Prince through the courts for their money, lodged an objection with the local council over the Malahide concert. One of their complaints was that the proposed capacity for the concert, 35,000 people, was excessive. The man to answer these issues on behalf of the promoters for the Malahide concert was Gar Houlihan. Well, our role in relation to events such as the Prince concert would be to come up with an event management plan. He's a specialist in safety at leisure events. Providing security structures, providing medical support, providing catering services. So it's the coordination of all those logistics into a comprehensive plan so people can enjoy a gig. We had done a fairly in-depth analysis and we were happy that we could accommodate up to 35,000 people if necessary. The council were happy too. And the Malahide concert got the go-ahead. <laughs> Ireland was next on the list after the technically fraught concert in Cologne. Prince flew into Dublin under the assumed name Mr. Badminton. With him was his road crew. Every big concert has a road crew, which travels to each venue and a local crew hired just for the event at a particular venue. When Prince flew into Dublin at the end of July 2011, his road crew included a tour manager, guitar tech, drum tech, bass tech, the sound engineer, stage manager and production coordinator. On the morning of the concert, they were at Malahide Castle grounds at 7am, unpacking their equipment cases. At eight, news came over the walkie-talkies. They were fired and told to leave the venue immediately. A few minutes later, some of the local crew arrived to start setting up. I remember instantly feeling nervous, instantly feeling nervous. One of the local crew was Hamlet Sweeney, who was there to install the giant video screens. They didn't tell me initially what was going on, but nobody was happy and there was a strange atmosphere. I think I asked for the tour manager, I was told. There is no. Hamlet Sweeney wasn't the only one to notice the mood on the morning of the concert. Are you setting up for the concert? For example, this is a stage crew getting ready for a recent concert in Malahide Castle. 
making a radio documentary about the Prince concert that was on here in 2011. When we spoke to them, some of them had worked at the 2011 Prince concert and they remembered problems on that day, but they didn't want to be recorded talking about it and they weren't the only ones. Several people we spoke to who had worked at the concert didn't want to talk publicly about it. They explained that the music business is so small and they didn't want to get a reputation for complaining. Producer Colin McAlarney spoke to some of those who worked at the 2011 concert, including one who was fired that morning. One of the industry jokes going around is that it was a badge of honour to be fired by Prince. Another comment that was made about working with Prince or being part of Prince's crew was that it was like being a First World War fighter pilot where you were counting down the days rather than the weeks that you would last in the crew. Somebody else from the production crew also said that if things didn't work out for Prince on a particular gig, he wouldn't blame himself. He would blame everyone else around him. He would never hold up his hand and say it was my fault or maybe I did this wrong. He would blame everybody else in the crew. The person that I was talking to that was fired in Malahide had no idea and still to this day does not know as to why they were fired. One of the other stories from the Malahide concert was uh, Prince saw a truck behind the stage and it was red. Supposedly Prince didn't like the colour red so he demanded that the truck be removed but because it was so late in the day the production crew couldn't move the truck So instead, they got black drapes and covered it over to make it look like it disappeared. When Colin asked one of the production team for a one-word description of the backstage preparations for the Malahide Castle concert, he was told chaos. Hamlet Sweeney, the video technician, agrees. It felt rudderless. There was an atmosphere like if you walk into a room, there's just some bad news has been delivered. And it might not be directly related to you, but you just feel it. That's exactly how it felt. So Prince fired his road crew at 8am on the morning of the concert. Hours later, all of them have not been replaced. For example, there was still no guitar tech. Then, at lunchtime, Scott Halliday, an Irish guitar tech, got a call from a man working at Malahide. All he said was, we need somebody to come out and work at Malahide Castle, at the Prince gig. That was it. Just how fast can you get here? They didn't say anything more though, because I just presumed I was going to be working for the support band or, you know, something smaller. I had no idea what I was walking into. Scott got to Malahide at about two o'clock. He was met at the gate, unusual for a guitar tech. So he immediately got me parked and then escorted me right into the back of the stage. And it was only then, in while walking, he was just like, so you're going to be teching Prince and setting up his gear. And I was just like pale, <laughs> feeling sick. <laughs> so he led me onto the back of the stage, up the back steps behind. And I, I got up to the top and I could just see all the Prince's band just set up and playing drums. And I could just see all these full flight cases in the middle of the stage that just said Prince guitar or Prince paddleboard. And I was just kind of left there to my own devices just to try and figure it all out. And I was just... I just couldn't believe what was happening. (laughs) I very quickly opened up all the cases to try and get my bearings on what was there and there was a lot and I was just trying to figure out where does it all go. At one point I was on Google Images looking for Prince guitar setup to try and figure out how his gear went together which was actually very helpful because nobody there was able to help me because anyone who would have been able to help me 
have been let go. They may have been let go, but they weren't quite gone. Another Irish production member saw to that. Lynn Byrne had been drafted in that day as production manager. She talked to Joe Duffy on Liveline. The setup was so elaborate. The Irish guys were a little bit bamboozled. They were like, we're not quite sure which way this needs to go. So I had to make the decision to ring the crew that had been fired, who were still in a hotel in Dublin waiting on a flight out, get them in a vehicle, bring them on site, but very sort of cloak and dagger. Mm. We had to hide them because obviously Prince wouldn't be happy if he had seen them back on site. So we basically had to hide them in a car behind an articulated truck at the back of the stage <laughs> and put them on walkie-talkies to the Irish crew and basically get them to talk the Irish guys through the entire setup. Not only was Scott trying to sort out what went where, he also had to deal with other stresses. I had Prince's manager, I had the promoter, just everyone in my ear saying, can you get this to work? How long is it going to take? Blah, blah, blah. And I was just a lot of pressure. This kind of went on. I, I'd go off and I'd try and set up a few amps and then all of a sudden the manager's back and she's stressed, stressed, stressed. Just, can you make this work? Can you make this work? Stre like the stress on them. They're sweating, running around. You can see them. I was just saying, I'm going to do my best, you know. It took Scott an hour to get a rough setup together. It was coming up to three o'clock and the fans were due to be let in at four. Within about five minutes of me making noise through his amps, he came onto the stage. Apparently, you always knew when Prince was about to appear for one particular reason, according to Declan Lowney, a TV director who worked with Prince. You smell him. He smelled amazing. You know, just a very, very beautiful scent that reached the room before he did and let you know somebody important was about to arrive. Hamlet Sweeney, the video screen expert, was still on stage connecting cables when Prince emerged from the wings. Like he owned the world. If you want to know kind of how he walked, it was like a, a little bit like John Travolta. <laughs> I'm struck by a few things. Not the smallness, but the petiteness, the tiny frame, like a robin, like a bird, you know, this, this tiny stature. You're also just so taken by his presence. There's something about being three feet away from this guy and look at his hair and his eyelashes and the detail. You know, he had an aura. There was something really magical about being in his company, being in his presence, that kind of made it impossible to just see him as a regular person. Prince then went over to the extremely stressed guitar technician, Scott Halliday. And he just said hello and he, said, he thanked me for being here and for making things work. He shook my hand and he just said, I'm just going to use this one guitar just keep an eye on me. And then he just walked off over towards his mic stand. When Prince got to the mic stand, he had another surprise in a day of surprises. He wanted to rehearse. That was not on the schedule. You know, a sound check, that's one thing. But rehearsing with an unspecified period was a problem for us. Health and safety man Gar Houlihan. A sound check, you can come on stage and a lot of other artists would just have the one, two, two, one, one, two. In this case, he was going to start rehearsing. That rehearsing went on from three until a quarter past six. Perhaps understandable, given all the new people Prince was working with that day. However, the support band were due to start at quarter to six and the gates were supposed to open at four. Prince said the gates had to stay closed until he was finished rehearsing. Nobody could see him when he was rehearsing. And this was not on the, on the cards. 
We had people arriving. We had a very sophisticated plan about how to distribute people and bring them in comfortably, and make sure they could be accommodated. But suddenly, we weren't going to have the arena to put them in. So we had to find other things, and they couldn't be seen. So we came up with a plan quickly to try and hide them behind the grandstands and corral them there. But as more and more trains arrived in Malahide carrying fans, those corrals began to fill up. And Gar Houlihan and his team had to build more corrals to accommodate the new arrivals. And opening up more space and more space, it was pretty hectic. This went on for a couple of hours, the fans being herded around Malahide Castle grounds. The fans themselves seemed oblivious to the chaos happening backstage, and most of them didn't seem to mind the delay anyway. It was a lovely sunny day. Linda Clark was one of those corralled fans. We were outside in the grass, but we didn't care. We were just glad to be there and thought, oh great, we're going to see Prince. After a few hours, they let us go so far in, and we queued up there, and Prince shouted out, does that sound all right out there? And of course the whole crowd went crazy, you know. It's very good. Rachel Stack, another Prince fan, was in Malahide that day. We live in Rush, so we got to train to Malahide and we got off and the whole town was completely buzzing. The train even going in was buzzing. And it was just a great atmosphere. It was really, really great atmosphere. And we walked into Gibney's because there was a tribute band on in there, but we couldn't even get in the door. Gibney's is a Malahide pub and Gary Moran was playing with that tribute band. When they finished, he joined the fans to walk up to the castle. All the lanterns were on in the park. Very kind of nice feeling again. Everybody seemed to be in great spirits. When you went in through the grounds, it was just magical. It was the first time I've ever seen anything like that. There was all lights up in the trees and everything and just a real excitement in the air. All you could see really was a kind of sea of purple. Tony Clayton Lee, music journalist. Like there was purple everywhere. I mean like everywhere. Banners, people wearing t-shirts, trousers, hair. So there was a great sense of anticipation as you were walking from the main street down that kind of snaking path through Malahide Castle grounds into where the gig was staged. You know, there was even more purple. Purple and purple and purple. It was just kind of ridiculous, really, but it was good fun, too. Inside, the Irish production crew were also having fun. I'll never forget this gig. Hamlet Sweeney, the video screen expert, was actually on stage during the rehearsal. Very rare. Doesn't happen. That's the band's moment. That's the artist's moment. And so I'm literally a foot and a half away from Prince, plugging in these cables as he's playing the guitar. This absolutely incredible musicality coming from him. I'm a musician and I'm just looking at him kind of going, wow, absolutely, I can't believe how good he is. And the band around him and the way he was signaling to the band and the little things. And um, I kind of slowed down a bit knowing we'd get it done just so I could soak it all in. Hamlet may have been enjoying himself, but another Irish expert drafted in to replace a fired crew member was the unfortunate focus of Prince's attention. I don't remember him cursing or anything like that, but uh, he wasn't cool. He wasn't cool. The front of house engineer was the late Colin Boland, one of the best in the business. Like nothing was good enough. Hamlet Sweeney. And I was kind of going, you know, he's making people stand out there waiting to get into the gig just so we can get a slightly different sound on this. I was kind of going, is he a genius? Or is he, and is he right, therefore? Or is he just being really egotistical? 
and I couldn't tell, I couldn't tell. But at the same time, he was, you know, he was very much like, no, 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 there it is, almost, there it is. So, you know, he definitely sent something. I remember listening with kind of relatively trained ears, no, no prints, but relatively trained ears, kind of going, what's he doing there? But he really did know what he wanted. I don't particularly remember him being difficult just for the sake of it, but he was being difficult. Finally, the rehearsal finished, and at 20 to 7, two and a half hours late, the gates opened and the fans rushed in. Ruben Atlas, a documentary filmmaker working at the concert, watched from the stage area. People started sprinting, and there was this guy, like, he had, like, big, long red hair, and he was, like, I don't know, 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and jacked, and full-on just, like, sprinting towards the stage to get a good seat. And he, it, like, he looked like a dude from Braveheart. Well, I just ran. Linda Clark, the superfan from Tyrone. Headed straight for the front, as close as I could get. And my daughter was there too. So I just grabbed her and ran to the front and Sean and Tony couldn't keep up. But uh, when we got to the front, we actually kept places, which I don't know how we managed, but... <laughs> so we were lucky, we got right up to the very front of the stage. Then, at ten past eight, just ten minutes late, Prince took to the stage. Let's party! Prince come out with a camera, taking photos of the audience. But the audience weren't fully into the stadium at the time, and he was telling the audience to come onto the stadium. Music journalist Tony Clayton Lee remembers Prince was wearing a hooded poncho. In white, if memory serves correctly. Perfectly styled, the epitome of a showman. He was telling people to phone your friends to get down here, or we'll wait on them if they want. And he came out taking the photos of the crowd. Then he just walked back and reached the camera to somebody, and then the song Gold started. And that's how the concert started. The concert was underway, but behind the scenes, the promoter and his health and safety man couldn't relax just yet. One of the problems at the time was the structure of the contract, was that once he appeared and stood on the stage, he had fulfilled his contract. So if he had appeared on the stage, fulfilled his contract, and decided not to sing any further, that would have had serious complications and you know, implications for everybody. Producer Colin McAlarney says this fits with what he was told by the production people he spoke to. If there's any way he could have a backout clause or some way of getting out of a concert, he would have it built into his contract. He would always have left an escape route open. When the first song finished, though, Prince kept on playing. Let's Go Crazy, Delirious, 1999, Raspberry Beret. Prince played for hours at Malahide Castle. Cream, cool. Going through all the hits. Let's work, you got the look. Then he walks off stage and all the girls in the band sing Make You Feel My Love by Bob Dylan, which gives him time to get changed. And then he came back out and did Purple Rain. 
anytime you see Prince play Purple Rain live, it's somewhat of a blessing. Andrew Jenkinson from the Prince Tribute Act. You just feel that you're in the presence of genius performing a work of real art. But in July 2011 in Malahide Castle, Prince's performance of Purple Rain was something quite remarkable. I started to rain just as he sang it, and it was something that was just, it just felt so special, you know. There was this like mist that came down. It was right as the chorus to Purple Rain hit. lighting guy just like flicked on the light purple. The whole castle and like the whole area was lit in this like purple mist. For the video technician, Hamlet Sweeney, Prince on stage was fascinating to watch. It was like he heard every note, you know, looking around the stage, kind of like, ooh, giving the drummer a dirty look. Really gave an impression about soaking everything in that's going on around him and controlling it. Prince just really seemed like he was, you know, the captain of a Boeing 747. <laughs> but it was very clear he was communicating with his guys. You know, like he'd, he'd hold the neck and he'd kind of look and he'd just push the neck towards someone. You know, he'd suddenly turn and look and you think, it was, a, was it a dance move? No, it wasn't. He's given someone in the band a dirty look. They've obviously done something he doesn't like. There was a lot of that going on. Scott Halliday, the guitar tech, was also watching Prince closely from the wings. And he came over to me at one point and he was saying something. I couldn't figure out what it was. He was kind of pointing at the guitar. I, I didn't know what it was. Like, and eventually the girl who does the teleprompters for him just said to me, he wants to spray for the guitar. And I was like, what spray? So I opened up, there was a production case there that wasn't mine, but I opened it and there's just like a drawer full of this spray called Fingeries. And he basically was asking me to go out and spray his guitar down while playing it with uh, this stuff called Fingeries, which is like a lubricant so he can just shred faster, which uh, I learned later that he just uses on all his guitars like all the time. He, he wants the guitars like dripping with this stuff. Clark, the super fan, the concert was going great, but it was about to get a lot better. Well, years before, um, we had a banner, and it was for the point, and I forgot to take it with me, and I thought, well, I'll try it this time, I'll take it with me. So uh, I knew when I seen the steps at say, the stage that I was going to call people up, because that's the way it usually is, you know. So whenever it says, right, I'm going to call some people up on the stage, I took my banner out and held it up, and uh, Andy Allo seen it, and she pointed down for me to come up. I just couldn't believe my luck. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I got over the railings, and there was, like, steps, and there was, like, a walkway right up to where Prince was standing, and see walking down that, and it had been raining, and they were saying, make sure you don't slip when you're walking down. But I just couldn't wait to get down the runway, like to see him and he was just standing there in front of me and I thought, oh my God, I can't, he's actually real, he's human, you know, it was unbelievable. I was dancing, I don't even know what I was doing myself. 
but they were doing the board and there's like actions to it and I'm sure I was lovely trying to do it but <laughs> I was trying it anyway. <laughs> One of the girls that was called up on stage came up, that came up after me. She just walked over and gave him a kiss, and I thought, well, she got a kiss, I'm going to try. So I went over beside him and put my arm around him and tried to kiss him, but he kind of gave me a look. And I thought, oh, <laughs> at least he's seen me anyway. <laughs> One of the other fans on stage that day in Malahide was Roy Sudipta. And he takes off his Telecaster, probably his prized possession, that guitar and puts it on my shoulders and says, play. So I picked up a plectrum. I've been playing the guitar on and off for, you know, 20 years, but very off rather than on, and I'm not really very good. Uh, but I kind of managed to put something together which was in the sort of the right key, and it kind of went off fairly well. It was an incredibly special moment, and it's something I think about every day. Finally, at 25 past 10, the concert in Malahide Castle was over. Thank you so much. Two and a quarter hours after it began. Oh, you're gonna make me remember this night. As he walked off stage, he handed me the guitar and said thank you and walked off. So, you know, so yeah, he was definitely happy. He walked off first and then stopped, right? And the stage was high. And so it was like there were these big blocks that you sort of had to traverse. And he helped every single one of his bandmates down and waited for them. And then they all walked together back to the tent. And they sort of surrounded him, this little like man-god elf character. But for those musicians, their night's work wasn't over yet. After every concert, Prince and the band sat down with a DVD of the concert they'd just played. Looking at the DVD, Prince gave each member notes on their performance. Outside, in the emptying arena, health and safety man Gar Houlihan reflected on his day's work. An amazing concert. There were a whole series of potential escalating incidences depending on him starting, finishing, stopping halfway through, firing somebody else. It's, it's certainly one of the most memorable gigs. It was memorable for all the right reasons, according to Tony Clayton Lee, music journalist. There was no question that the gig was a major success. He was clearly aware of the gig that never happened. You know, that brought an extra special element to the show. The concert reminded Hamlet Sweeney of an important fact about the music business. What's going on behind the stage can be terrible, but to the punter in the crowd, no difference. Perhaps it's a testament to how much of a pro Prince was, or perhaps it just actually doesn't bloody matter and it's the tunes. From what I've learned about Prince and about his good traits and bad traits. Colin McAlarney, producer. His good traits would have been seeing the best in people. For example, during the rehearsal, he did give the front of house engineer Colin Boland a hard time, but he must have seen something in the engineer as he was asked to continue on on the tour. However, Colin declined the offer. Similar, he saw something in Scott Halliday, the guitar technician, and he was also asked to continue on the tour. I was like, wow, that was amazing. I don't care what we do. Right around Europe, had some amazing times, ended up playing guitar with Prince on stage, at gigs and off stage, loads of songs every night, which was just mind blowing. 
While the music industry insiders remember the Malahide concert because of all the tensions surrounding it, the fans just remember it for being a great night and for being the last concert Prince was ever to play in Ireland. Now news just coming in, the death has taken place of the singer Prince in the past few minutes. His publicist confirmed Prince Rogers Nelson, for one night, the King of Malahide Castle, died in April 2016. Don't you hear this old school joint? Don't you ever touch my stereo!